0: Welcome to the Remote Work Drive Podcast with your host, Jessica Malnick. Stay tuned to learn how to manage remote teams that are effective, collaborative, and happy. This is Jordan Gall. I am the co-founder and CEO at Rally.
1: Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the Remote Work Drive Podcast, Jordan. Can you maybe talk about the most exciting thing that you're working on these days?
0: Most exciting thing is that when we get on a call with a partner, a merchant, there's a lot of surprise involved in what we're doing. People are a bit perplexed if we're crazy or we're brilliant or, we'll st- or we're stupid or we're onto something. And I, I like being right there, what we call flying close to the sun. So generally what we're doing is not like this accepted thing in the e-commerce space. And it surprises people throws some people off, scares some people, pisses people off. But I think I like living right there.
1: It definitely makes it, super more, it makes it more interesting. How do you kind of like build out your team to make sure that everyone on your team is kind of along for the same ride and has the same expectations?
0: So one key characteristic of our company is that we started off during the pandemic. And so we were remote by default. And our engineering team is in Europe, and our go-to-market and product teams are in the U.S. And one of the things that we have always done in my previous company that had two offices, one in Europe and one in the U.S., and now fully remote, we've always looked at everyone on the team as equal. And what that really means is that, like the W2 American employees, that's pretty straightforward. But in Europe, it makes sense that they're contractors, but we do not think of them or treat them as contractors. And that has always been our default, that everyone's on an even playing field. Everyone gets equity. Everyone gets treated the exact same with all the things that perks and rights and everything else that go along for any employee. And I think that has been a surprising experience for some of our engineering team. And we've heard multiple times that this is the best that they've been treated by an American company. And to us, it felt so obvious, but it was actually a, a big deal to them. And so that flows through the entire company and just the way we treat people. And what we get back is this combination of loyalty mixed in with like self-interest. So they, it's not like they're loyal to the company above themselves. They see it as a great place for them to live and work and uh, grow in their career. And that comes back to the company in the form of hard work, cohesion, loyalty. And there's this element of everyone knows that they're part of something good and they want to protect that. And so they're proactive in the way they behave and also their expectations of their colleagues. And, and a lot of that is purposeful, and some of it is like this mystery to me because I'm, I'm in my early 40s. I am from the generation of going to the office and really enjoying going to the office with people, and I sometimes am baffled that this whole thing works. The fact that you can build a software company where everyone coordinates on all this stuff fully remotely is still magic to me in some ways. So part of it is purposeful and part of, part of it is like a mystery. Like it's, it still baffles me sometimes that, that it works the way it does, not just our company, others as well.
1: I can totally relate to that. Taking a step back, I have like so many follow-up questions to what you just said there. So going back to kind of the whole difference between in office and remote, what were some of the biggest kind of mindset shifts or things that you had to unlearn? In order to make a fully remote first team uh, and a remote first company actually work well,
0: we're remote, but we're not asynchronous, and making making that work can be tricky because we we st- we do more. I think we do more calls and synchronous work than most remote software companies. So there's there's a blend there around. I have no problem with the trust required in remote. Like you just treat people like adults and you expect them to behave responsibly and they do their work. And like, I don't even think about that. That's like zero worry to me. Where my challenge is, is around the intangible interactions, ideas, brainstorming, debate. That is something that I don't want to let go of that. I I, I think of that as synonymous with fully asynchronous. Uh, I know that can all be done in written form, but it is more challenging than the real-time interactions. So we have this mixture of a remote team and a remote culture, but we have more synchronous activity than than others. So we we have to coordinate time zones. We have to overlap. Some people in Europe work later than I would want them to work, but that's kind of what works with the schedule. So we're still learning. This is not a finished product is is what it feels like. And I can foresee new challenges as we scale. We're, we're currently 25 people and I could see a new set of challenges and a new skill set and practices that are required when we get to 50 people, let alone 100 and beyond.
1: Yeah, absolutely. How do you balance given that you have team members in the US and in Europe and being a little bit more synchronized? Synchronous in terms of like meetings. How do you ensure that you're balancing that and making sure that you know people still have time to do deep work while also being in meetings and calls?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we I I think the way to say what we do is is vigilance. So we are we are vigilant that we don't take over people's calendars too much with meetings. Uh, so we just have a general philosophy around okay if this is a meeting that's going to happen every week or every two weeks or any regular cadence we are going to poke at it and challenge whether or not it actually needs to happen that way, as opposed to just stacking those repetitive meetings one on top of another. And over time, it starts to take more and more of your weekly schedule. So we're just aware that we don't want to burden people with unnecessary meetings. And so we we poke at it regularly. We, we just took one of our regular meetings uh, asynchronous. We have this stand-up that's specific to the go-to-market team. And it felt like we were talking about things that could very easily just be Slack messages. So we set up a go-to-market stand-up Slack channel and just moved it over to there for the last few weeks and are now experimenting and seeing, is this necessary to be synchronous or are we good with what we have right now in Slack? So I think it's just not, not being willing to set something in stone, especially if it interrupts people's calendars.
1: Absolutely. And what are some of the signs that a meeting that was once like repetitive and on schedule, uh, maybe it's a good time to retire that meeting or move it async or something else entirely?
0: I try to watch for what's happening in the meeting. And if it's one person talking while a bunch of people listen, that is a good candidate for being asynchronous if it is interaction and challenging and debate and questions and learning from one another that that there's magic in that there's there's like this potential in that type of meeting to create breakthroughs and learn so as soon as it gets over into well everyone's just basically you know speaking a few paragraphs while everyone else listens and everyone goes around and does the same thing that is less productive
1: absolutely and to follow on to that, like you mentioned a little a while ago about brainstorming and doing all of those brainstorming on calls. There's like 20 different schools of thoughts on how to do brainstorming. Um, some people say like, should I be right in asynchronous and then get together at the very end? Mm-hmm. Um, I have a suspicion that maybe you can, you guys do that a little bit differently. Can you talk about how you incorporate brainstorming into on a remote team?
0: I try to spot out. So I live in Slack. That's my general business life. Um, Slack and Zoom calls. And I like it that way. <laughs> I know some people try to a- avoid both of those. Uh, I lean into that. That's my strength. Uh, my strength is understanding what people need. And on Zoom calls it's it feels like performance. It's you know, sales call, partner call, team call. Uh, and and I like that work. So I'm clearly extroverted, right? When I have a day full of Zoom meetings, at the end of the day, I'm wired up and excited. So that's how I know that that's, that's that's the right direction for me to go in, as long as it's high leverage. So if it's a partner that can introduce us to 10 customers, that's high leverage. When it comes to Slack, I like to look out for very, very small differences in what people are saying. So I'll see this conversation and... I, In many ways, it's easier for me as an outsider to that conversation to spot out a small difference that those two people think they're saying the same thing and they think they're on the same page, but they're actually not. And I like to jump into that little bit of ambiguity. And my preference is actually to identify that and very quickly go to a synchronous conversation. So we have the uh, Zoom integration into our Slack. And so at any point in time, I can hit backslash Zoom go and a room pops up and we talk about it very quickly and then we get out, right? It doesn't need to be a 30-minute call every time, especially in the early days of the company. So so we, we had this challenge. We had a hypothesis. We did not have strong confidence. We didn't have product market fit. So we had a lot of guesses and assumptions around what merchants wanted what our customers wanted and why they wanted it so early on in the company's life i I like demanded that we challenge these assumptions and when someone would have a sales call i would try to extract as much information from that person as possible and push it into slack for the engineering teams the qa teams the product team for everyone to learn from every customer interaction because it was so early on and people didn't didn't quite get the nuance of what we're selling, right? And that's a strange thing to acknowledge that your internal team members need to get up to speed also. I have this general fear around our category that it's difficult to explain because people don't normally think of being able to wake up one day and change the checkout of their e-commerce business. People generally assume that the checkout is owned by the platform, and if I've decided to build my store on Adobe Commerce or Salesforce Commerce Cloud or Commerce Tools or Shopify or anything else, that I'm going to use the checkout provided by the platform. And and we challenge that assumption, and a lot of people just don't know what to do with that because they, they don't realize that it's possible. So I have been selling checkout for like six years. But a new engineer that comes along, we need to like indoctrinate them. We need to like marinate them in in these set of assumptions. So I I demanded we get as much out of every customer interaction as possible for educating the rest of the team. So I I like to look out for these small differences in uh, like assumptions uh, and then address them and then make sure we publicize that. So we try to do a lot in public Slack channels and only keep things in private Slack channels when necessary. Otherwise people miss out on these learning
1: opportunities. Okay, so I have a quick question and then a longer question based off of what you just shared there. Uh, One, do you use any tools like an AI note-taking app or like recordings or whatever to ensure that, you know, more than just the person on that call, on that sales call is able to get some of that context and some of that nuance?
0: So, so uh, meet record. I think that's that's the name of the app that we use, and that joins us on Zoom calls and records. So we haven't gone the next step into AI summarization, but we record uh, demos and we we share that with the rest of the team. But again, it's it's coming back to the same the same philosophy. We have conversations internally in the company. And that's well and good, but the second that goes out and talks to an actual prospect, that becomes more valuable than a lot of internal conversation. Uh, so I, I can't imagine a scenario where a product manager or a front-end engineer just never gets these interactions with potential customers and paying customers. So we, we do that a lot. I'll have a call, and while I'm on the call, I'll take notes. And then if there's a recording, I drop the recording as well. And then we basically publicize that. We take that from a one-on-one or two-on-one Zoom call with myself and maybe someone else on the team and a, a prospect. And we try to socialize that learning. So here are our bullet points, our notes from the conversation. And then here's the recording that you can watch on you know 1.5 speed. And then all of a sudden, everyone on the team can learn what we just learned, but not not summarized through our interpretation, they can hear it directly from the customer's mouth.
1: Absolutely. And when you're onboarding, let's say another, a new engineer or a new SDR, what are some of the ways that you can get somebody up to speed um, so that you understand all the nuances in this category?
0: You know, I, I don't I don't think there's um, there's much shortcut. I, I think it is a matter of time. You, you can't, You know, put everything together and here's all the material you you need. And because we are organized in the way we're giving you this material to to get up to speed on the product and the company and the customer base and the market, I don't think that will actually shorten the time that much. You can't put everything perfectly together and organize and hand it over and say, okay, within two weeks, you need to know everything. This is so complex, all of these different pieces, that it is a matter of time. So it just takes 90 days to kind of get a clue. So we do certain things to help that along in our onboarding process and our version of indoctrination, right? Here's a podcast Jordan did that talks about the history of the company. You know, lodge that in your head. Uh, Here is our demo store. Go through as a shopper and experience it from the shopper point of view and make note of every piece of friction you interact with on the checkout. And then come back and ask questions uh, or go into our admin and try to accomplish this set of tasks and see how easy or hard it is to understand what to do there as a first time user. So we, we do these things to onboard people, but there is an element to simply being in the company long enough and picking up these tiny bits of nuance. I, I wish I could do a better job of it. I think we will do a better job of it as we grow and we get like a, you know, a, a head of people that really focuses on it. But right now we really just tell people to be very open-minded, very inquisitive, ask a million questions and just jump in for the ride. I haven't come up with many better ways to to do it other than a a decent onboarding plan and be open-minded and and hop in.
1: I take it some of it also is just in like your hiring process and finding people who are going to be able to are naturally curious, naturally ask a lot of questions, naturally can pick up and be like emotionally intelligent. Is that would you say that's accurate?
0: Yes. Yes, it is. It's it's necessary. There are things that people who have been at the company for a year. And they will hear some tiny bit of nuance around why a merchant would possibly want this specific thing on their checkout, because that's how they use landing pages. And that gives them attribution to their influencers. And they're like, I had no idea that our product even did that or why someone would want that. And now I have a little bit more knowledge. So the type of person that experiences that you can receive that as something very frustrating. I can't believe I've been here for a year. No one told me that that's, that's, you know, frustrating, or you can say that's amazing how complex this whole thing is. And there is no, there's no finite end to me, to my knowledge of this product in this category. So I'm just absorbing as I go along. And it's kind of fun that I have a long way to go still, even though if I've been here for you. So that, that personality uh, is not something that you can teach. That's just how, how the person is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You can train for scale, but you really can't really train for attitude.
0: Yeah. That's a good way to put it.
1: Yeah, so shifting gears a little bit, uh, you're one of the few founders who I've ever chatted with who basically went from kind of fully bootstrapping a company to now going the opposite route and having a company that is VC funded. Can you maybe talk a little bit more about kind of your philosophy and your approach to, uh, you know, now running a VC funded company?
0: Yes. I don't know how to describe the philosophy. I, I think about this sometimes. It I usually think about it when I'm triggered in some way. Uh, from a conversation that repeats itself on Twitter. And that is which one's better, bootstrapping or, or VC. And it is, it is such a strange conversation to watch from my point of view, because I've done both. And I don't see nearly as big of a difference as those Twitter conversations make it out to be. So if there's any philosophy <laughs> that I have, it's that both of those have the same goal. And that goal is success. Success is defined by the individual person and company and team, but that's still the same goal. And bootstrapping or VC are two ways to get to the goal. That, that, that's all it is. So I don't see it being that big of a difference. Now, in the day-to-day, there are differences. And having more money in the bank from outside investors is a double-edged sword. It's not all good and it's not all bad. The same way with bootstrapping and being forced to be profitable and being forced to be very real about what you're doing, who you're doing it for, and how much you're charging them. That also has pros and cons. I've enjoyed both. Uh, I think, okay, so so let, let, let's talk about the, like on the ground experience. The last company was bootstrapped and profitable, so we got to about six million in ARR and were profitable. We got there; our growth was very incremental. Our team growth and expense growth was very incremental. Meaning, if you imagine a line that graphs revenue, that plots revenue on a graph, we kept expenses pretty close to it. We would have expenses hop over that line. When it made sense and we would very consciously burn because we needed to get something done we needed to get to another feature another uh our customers grew to the point that we needed another support and success person we wanted to do something more we needed more help on the front end so a very conscious decision to become unprofitable and then we would let the revenue graph overtake the expenses and we would get back to profitability and we would hang out there strategically. We would say, okay, we're good here. Let's stock up some cash. And if we need to spend more than we're making, then we'll do that. So it was, it was pretty close to the line for a while. And then toward the end, we kind of hit a, a larger amount of growth that allowed it to become more profitable than we, like the, the lines weren't going to cross anymore. But survival mode, the most important years, were just playing around with those two numbers, revenue and expenses, and trying to manage that the right way. We looked at your bank account and you manage those two numbers. It's not that different now. It, it's still look at the bank account and then manage the revenue and expense numbers. You're just dealing with a larger bank balance. And what that allows you to do is have the difference between revenue and expenses be larger. That's all. It, it's still thinking through runway and how much time you have and how much you should be spending now based on how much time you have and how aggressive you want to be. But it still has a lot of the same reality of, I mean, if you if you want to go crazy, you can, you'll just you know, burn your business to the ground. Uh, or if you're too conservative, then you won't achieve what you're trying to achieve. So I, I don't know, I don't know if that answers any questions or just like the the normal day to day that uh, I like to think about. I, I enjoy both. I thought being profitable gives you a really nice night of sleep. <laughs> no, no, no bullshit. It feels amazing to be uh, profitable. You sleep well. You approach things more uh, confidently. There's less anxiety involved and, and, and all that. Uh, and at the same time, on the VC side, I really like being in what feels like the big game. Uh, it's just big numbers, big expectations, uh, swinging for the fences, big ambition, all, all that. So I, I think they're both great. And as long as people know what they're getting into, then they should make their own decisions. The The danger is in going toward one without a good understanding of what it means. And, and usually I think uh, the mistake is made going toward VC without really understanding what you're getting yourself into.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I have a lot of follow on questions to what you just shared there. Now kind of leading a VC-funded startup, how has that changed up at all your approach to hiring onboarding and building a team?
0: Uh so right the obvious is is more aggressive right that's like that's like straightforward like you're given money you, you form a partnership with investors they provide capital you provide your know-how and your day-to-day work and that partnership one of the underlying assumptions is to, to be more aggressive than you would with your own money, right? If you are just trying to get profitable and you're saying, okay, I got a hundred grand to put into this business and I'm going to, I got to make it work on this hundred K and there is no more money behind it. Uh, this is different with VC. It says, okay, we, we raised $6 million in our seed round at rally. And what that, what that allowed us to do is immediately build the team required to build the product that we believed was necessary in order to succeed in our market and what we're trying to do. And that's a luxury, right? To be able to spend $3 million on getting a product to market is a luxury, but it makes sense in the context of what we're trying to do with our partnership with the investors, right? We're trying to take on a company, a competitor like Bolt, which has raised $950 million. And has used that funding to build out a product and get themselves uh, the customer base and credibility and partnerships that can allow them to become a a billion-dollar company. So at the seed stage, if that's what we're pointing at, hey, we think that they're not doing a great job and we have room to compete, then the point is to be ambitious and to be aggressive. And so it's okay to spend millions of dollars getting a product to market. Right, whereas that sounds, you know, like a bad idea if you're bootstrapping to to put in that much money of, of your own money and then try to get profitable d- directly after that.
1: Absolutely, you kind of hinted at this before, right? but what are some of the signs that a founder should go one way or the other? Whether it is like you know, and maybe they're making a mistake, and let's say they're going the VC route and they be bootstrapping, or vice versa.
0: I think people get into danger when they are ideological about it. Uh, And they think that one is better than the other, like morally, like VC is, you know, full of BS and you're, you're really just working for the investors and they kind of look at it like unfairly or negatively. And they say, I'm, I'm doing like the right thing and this is the real way to do business. And that means bootstrapping like anything ideological like that. Like you're, 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 you're mixing up your your religion with your finance department. Uh the, the funding is just a means to an end. And, and thankfully, these days, there is more of a blended set of options. With with funds like Tiny Seed out there, there are more in-betweens. The, the, the truth is, Cardhook, which was bootstrap-e, uh, started bootstrap, but we actually took some friends and family money and kept it bootstrapped. So we got profitable. We took a little bit of money. I called it cheating at bootstrapping because we took on a little bit of outside money, but we didn't change our philosophy in any way. We were still looking to become a profitable company, and we were trying to thread the needle, uh, meaning take on just enough money to grow quickly, but not so much that it changes the required outcome. So you could still get acquired or stay profitable. And I paid out a lot of dividends from Cardhook, and that was one option, one way to go. Or we we did end up with an acquisition at the end, but we, we had all the, the, the options in front of us. That's the great thing about bootstrapping. You keep all that optionality, which was my goal with the previous company. With Rally, the option set is limited in some ways. Once you take on institutional money, the agreement is this is what we're trying to do. And we're trying to grow and then attract more capital and raise more money and grow faster and go big, you know, try to have a much larger outcome. And so an outcome that would have been a phenomenal uh, end for Cardhook would be seen as a not so favorable, not very good, effectively a failure uh, on, on the VC funded side.
1: Absolutely. And you don't have to answer this as it's probably a pretty challenging question to answer, but uh, raising money for a rally, you kind of did that at a, at a kind of an interesting time in the economy um, where it wasn't like 2020 and 2021, but more in kind of 2022 and this year in 2023. What was that environment like when it came to raising funds and more, let's just say, uncertain economy?
0: Oof. So another element that exists on the VC side of running a startup uh, that does not exist to the same degree when bootstrapping is you are more susceptible to the whims of the market. You, you have much more money available. Things are easier when money's available. And all of a sudden your options uh, shrink when the market is not good. When you're bootstrapping, you, do, you can create a bit of a force field, a barrier around your company because you're not you're not dependent on outside sources of capital. Of course, your customers are affected and their willingness and optimism and all that is affected, but on the financing side, you you don't have the same you don't have the same ups and downs. So in our case, we raised our first money in 2020 and that was it didn't feel that frothy it was available and and money was out there and we were able to to raise that seed round for our series a that we did uh last year we we raised a 12 million dollar series a and I, it was it was it was quite stressful actually i started fundraising i i sent out the deck and requests for appointments and in between the time of sending that out to to investors and the first meeting that I had in between those two, about two week period is when the market crashed in, in in the spring. So it went from, this is gonna be a piece of cake. Let's just kind of raise our hand and, and raise 20 million bucks like other e-commerce enablement startups were doing. And it changed on a dime. And that created a, a really stressful few months for us because we, we had geared our company to be able to raise money in an environment that all of a sudden no longer existed. So that was a challenge. And that was one of those examples of, you know, the the downside of running a VC funded company is that your your plans are to spend money to be aggressive and then go back out to market to raise more money. So we, we were pretty fortunate that we were able to raise and we didn't raise too much. And we didn't raise in an absurd valuation, which could have happened if I had fundraised three months prior. So it was very stressful. But I think now we're in a very healthy position that we don't have this crazy valuation to catch up to. We don't have a horrible preference stack to deal with. Um, and so I think it, in the future, I'll be happy about that. In the actual process, those three months were incredibly stressful. Yeah,
1: absolutely. What were some of the adjustments that you made within that three-month time period? And obviously to avoid becoming essentially becoming what some of the like D and E startups that have like insane mm-hmm. valuations and now either have to take down rounds or like shut down.
0: So um, we, we made changes to our narrative. Absolutely. We didn't make changes to our product, right? We're, we're building what we're building, but, but how we're positioning that, how we're talking about it and how we are talking about the competition changed significantly. What What happened in our market is that, Earlier on in 2022 or maybe late 2021, checkout was like the hottest thing on the damn web. I don't know how it happened, but between Fast and Bolt and all these Twitter threads, one-click checkout was like the only thing people talked about. And we were on the sidelines looking at it like, uh, you know, my style is not to write Twitter threads about like Stripe mafias and get attention for it. It seemed to be working, so I was questioning myself on maybe I should get out there and insert ourselves into this conversation. I'm happy I didn't do that. But at first, when we first started fundraising, pre-fundraising, not the actual fundraise, but the conversations I was having with investors just ahead of the fundraise to say, hey, we might you know, go out to market. Can we count on you? We'll, we'll set up stuff. In those conversations, everyone wanted to know about the competition. What are you gonna do about F- Fast? What are you gonna do about Galt, about Bolt? They're so far ahead. How are you gonna catch up? Right. And then a few weeks later, when we actually started fundraising, Fast had gone out of business at some point and Bolt had started to go from darling to not darling. Let, let's be gentle. And all of a sudden then I, I it didn't make sense for me to talk about the competition the same way. I had to talk about the competition in like the opposite way. Like, oh, there must be something wrong with your category because these two companies that were very well funded aren't doing well. Why is it any different for you? So a, a lot of it is narrative and projecting out into the future on what your company will be. And we also had to just change the way we talked about our growth story. It no longer made sense to say, hey, we're so early and we just grabbed a few beta merchants. And now that we're proving it out, we're ready for series A. Like That that narrative no longer made any sense. So we had to grow in the meantime and, and focus on you know, on metrics and numbers and churn and revenue uh, much more so than than if we had raised three months prior.
1: Shifting gears a little bit, you seem to be like really good at being able to spot and detect hype versus like what's actually really happening. Are there kind of tips or things that you've learned to be able to kind of weed out, you know, what is just true on hype versus, you know, something like a trend that you is really worth doubling down on?
0: It is, uh, if we go back to the bootstrap versus VC thing, it, it is a very frustrating experience for entrepreneurs in general to deal with the hype machine of venture-funded startups. It, it is frustrating. It can be annoying. What, what I have learned now being on the other side, being a venture-funded startup, is that there is an incentive to exaggerate you the all of the incentives for a venture funded company are to talk about yourselves as if you're the most amazing thing and the growth is unbelievable and i am so thrilled to announce all this kind of like insufferable social media hype around startups so most people like if you see things that are just positive it's, it's like other places in life. As soon as you talk to the person at a real level, you realize it's really hard for them also. Nothing's actually easy. So the, the danger that we all deal with on both the business front and like the Instagram, seeing your friends from college uh, pictures front is that you can't compare your real experience to the highlight real that you're seeing on social media. And, and I get that from just talking to a lot of people and becoming actually friends with people. And then people are vulnerable and you can be vulnerable back. And as soon as you do that, you realize, well, all the people that I'm, I talk to honestly have it much harder Than what I'm seeing online. And then you start to realize and start to discount, okay, look, they're, of course, they're going to sound so positive online because that's their incentive. It makes them look better and then feel better and makes their company look better. But in reality, I should probably be sympathizing with them and saying, I I hope they're doing okay because everyone's in the damn struggle, especially in 2023.
1: Yeah, so well said. On the hype cycle, where do you stand when it comes to artificial intelligence and AI?
0: on on AI in general the hype cycle yeah. yes uh i'm very happy for companies that are in the middle of that <laughs> um i think it's great right the 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 eye of sauron like trains its sights on a different part of the market at some point and that is where the heat is uh right now it's on ai and companies that are in that you know congratulations i'm, I'm happy for them they seem to be doing well there's always some danger in like the bubble stuff Uh, But if you can get it while it's good, then you should. I am watching and waiting to see how it shakes out. I think venture money didn't know where to go next, and AI all of a sudden popped up as this very uh, real feeling thing that was going to be a big wave. Inevitably, I think there will be a lot of disappointment in the actual outcomes. I think it's really unknown how a lot of these products differentiate themselves. But the the good thing about AI that I've seen around startups is that the actual demand is very real. So when I talk to people who are running these companies, like their revenue is going up very quickly. So it's not just hype. People want these products, they want to pay for them, and they're using them. How it shakes out from there in terms of differentiation and price pressure, like, I don't know, who knows? And then when I think about it from our company point of view, we are keeping an eye on where we can add real value to our customers. So we are not rushing ahead to just slap the AI label on our company. We don't I don't really see the point in that at, at this time. Uh, but we're waiting to see what comes out of the tooling and the infrastructure that we can use to help our customers add more value with our with our product. Uh, I guess in that way, we are looking at it as a lever to make our service more valuable. We are not looking to build a lot of this infrastructure ourselves directly.
1: Yeah, that seems like a really smart, measured approach. And maybe I should dive into that later on. But I also want to be respectful of your time. And before we kind of close out, I always like to ask a couple of lightning round questions. Sure. Um, if you could have coffee with any historical figure, who would you choose and why?
0: Oh, the person that comes to mind is Winston Churchill. Yeah, why? I'm I'm a big fan. I went deep in his autobiographies. Yeah, there's something about his story is so interesting. Yeah, I think that would be a highly entertaining coffee.
1: Awesome. I think you are only the second person I've had who I've asked, ever asked that question to that has said Winston Churchill.
0: Okay, there you go.
1: And if you had to write a book tomorrow, what would you write it about?
0: If I had to write a book? Yes. So <laughs> I don't know what this says about me, but the topic that comes to mind is autobiographical. It's It's fitting. It's July 5th, right? We just had July 4th. And so this entire weekend, a lot of my thought was around my experience as an immigrant and more specifically my parents' experience. And, um, and then I think about my kids and my kids are not immigrants. They're they're generally having an easier time in life than, than I had. Um, So I can't help, but think about that, that journey and what it does to you. Yeah. So I think that's, that's where I would go more so than, you know, something business related.
1: Yeah. I love that answer. Um, it's been a really great chatting with you on the Remote Work Tribe podcast, Jordan. Where can listeners find you online?
0: Thank you so much. It's been it's been great to be here. Thank you for having me on. Uh, to find out more about the company, you can go to getrally.com. That's G-E-T-R-A-L-L-Y.com. And then to uh, get in touch with me, it's just Jordan Gall at Twitter. Uh, same on LinkedIn. And I also do my own weekly podcast with a good friend of mine, Brian, where we talk about you know, ups, downs, trials, tribulations, wins, losses on, on the business front. And that is at bootstrappedweb.com. Awesome.
1: And yeah, you definitely have to ask. Web is one of the podcasts that listen to all the time.
0: Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Remote Work Drive podcast. Please visit our site, theremoteworkdrive.com, to learn more about remote work trends and insights.